0: This episode is brought to you by Volvo Cars. Distractions happen, but there are things that can help you stay focused, like the fully electric seven-seater Volvo EX90. It was made to help keep you and those around you on the road safe with LiDAR technology that can see what you sometimes can't and a two-camera driver understanding system designed to prevent distractions and help you stay focused. Visit volvocars.com US to learn more. Fracking has dramatically transformed the U.S. oil industry. It's created hundreds of thousands of jobs, lowered gas prices, and turned the United States into the number one producer of oil in the world.
1: But now, the industry is facing a crisis. The same moves that made it so successful are starting to undercut its business model. This year, more than 30 oil and gas companies have filed for bankruptcy, even the companies that are hanging on are suffering. For example, one of the fracking industry's pioneers, Chesapeake Energy, has seen its stock fall 99% from its peak in 2008.
0: Today on the show, how fracking transformed the world's oil market and why that may be its undoing. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Kate Limbaugh.
1: And I'm Ryan Knutson. It's Wednesday, November 20th. As little as 10 years ago, people were worried about the world running out of oil. And the U.S. appeared to be especially dry.
0: The majors, Exxon, Chevron, had essentially given up on drilling onshore in the U.S. and were going around the world looking for oil. I think some people felt like this was making the U.S. dependent on foreign oil. I mean, a lot of people felt that way.
1: Chris Matthews covers oil and gas.
0: Some of the wars we got into with Iraq, for example, were at least partially about us protecting energy
1: reserves that we rely on. Those energy reserves in Iraq and other places don't matter as much these days because now the world is awash in oil. And that's largely thanks to fracking. Before fracking got started, it had seemed like a crazy idea, even for people in the oil industry. But a small handful of oil speculators with a huge appetite for risk decided that they would give it a try. Like this guy Harold Hamm, who's now the CEO of Continental Resources.
0: He was the 13th child of Oklahoma sharecroppers and grew up incredibly poor, went into the oil field right after high school, He created this company, Continental Resources, and went up to North Dakota, where he was convinced there were billions and billions of barrels of of oil, bought the land for dirt cheap.
1: The land wasn't seen as valuable because it had already been tapped for the oil that was sitting right under the surface. But people like Harold Hamm thought there was a lot more oil they could still squeeze out of it. And getting it out would mean undertaking a massive and expensive operation— using an obscure technique called fracking.
0: Fracking is setting off little explosions underground to blow little holes in the rock and then release oil and gas from the rock and then spraying vast amounts of water, chemicals, and sand to push the oil and gas out of the rock. It's the source rock, they call it. It's where the oil and gas is turning into oil and gas. And they thought well, maybe we can go down there and hit all these little pockets and get it out. This was fairly revolutionary. No one had tried it, and even once they started trying it, people thought, it's just too expensive, it's not going to work.
1: And so how did it eventually turn the corner? How did the idea begin to spread? They coupled fracking with
0: another technique that had also been around, but they hadn't been used in concert with each other, which is horizontal drilling. So you drill down vertically into the ground and then you turn and go out horizontally. And then on the horizontal section, you start fracking all of that and you hit all these little pockets of oil and gas and then it comes back up the hole.
1: This complicated and expensive operation was being used in some cases for natural gas, but it never made much sense for oil production because it cost so much money to produce each barrel. But in the mid-2000s, oil got really expensive the price soared to over $100 a barrel. This meant, finally, you could sell it for more than what it costs to frack. And those early speculators like Harold Hamm suddenly looked like geniuses.
0: No one believed him. He proved that it worked, and his company is now one of the biggest shale companies in the U.S., and at one point he was worth more than $11 billion.
1: Chris says that for people like Harold Ham, there was more than just money at play, as they said about proving fracking was viable.
0: Some of the sort of pioneers of fracking, I think, really believed, one, that there was still oil and gas in the United States, and two, that it would be really important for the country, geopolitically, economically, to get that oil and gas out. Harold Ham likes to refer to himself as the advocate of American oil, And so I think there was some patriotism uh, attached Mm -hmm. to these efforts.
1: Once a few pioneers proved it could be done, other oil and gas prospectors rushed in. And behind them came Wall Street money.
0: 2006, 2008, it really starts picking up. Wall Street realizes that this is a a viable practice and starts putting money into these companies.
1: Uh Uh-huh, which was a sign that it wasn't just the frackers that— had a crazy idea, was that there was real big money that was starting to be put behind this idea.
0: That's right. All the banks, investors, private equity, everyone saw dollar signs, and it became a gold
1: rush. Wall Street was excited by the projections of what fracking would be able to do, turn out millions of barrels of oil per day on U.S. soil, and they started pumping money into the industry. All that money allowed fracking to take off, And oil companies bought up land in West Texas, Oklahoma, North Dakota, and Wyoming.
0: They were running around buying up land and then drilling sometimes, you know, maybe a couple wells just to prove that there was oil and gas there and that it was viable. And then they'd come back with their results and say, look, I'm getting, you know, 500,000 barrels out of this oil well over the next 30 years, and those numbers just kept growing and growing and growing, and Wall Street just kept pumping more and more money.
1: What was it that made them so optimistic? It was these incredible projections about the amount of oil that they could actually draw using this fracking method?
0: There's a, a metric that they really started touting that's called an EUR. It means Estimated Ultimate Recovery, and it's basically how much oil and gas they thought they could get out of these wells. It varies, you know, from region to region. But early on, they might be talking about two, three hundred, four hundred thousand barrels out of a well over its life. As time went on, they started talking about million barrel wells, you know, two million barrel wells.
1: As these projections kept going up and up, so did the amount of oil coming out of the ground. And as the industry took off, it started to fulfill some of its economic promise. It's meant jobs.
0: The Permian, which is in West Texas, New Mexico, has had one of the lowest employment rates in in the country. These two places are incredibly remote. I mean, there's the towns are tiny. You will find yourself driving long distances without seeing anything. And the last time I was in the Permian, I found myself in a traffic jam in the middle of the desert behind hundreds of big rigs, and there was just machinery, drilling rigs, and workers as far as the eye can see, and you're, you're literally in the mm-hmm. middle of the desert. When I was out there, we, um, we met a barber who works in Odessa, Texas, and he told me that barbers who worked for him were making one hundred and fifty dollars to $180,000 a year.
1: Wow, which I can't only imagine then how much money the drillers were making.
0: They're making lots of money. I mean, one thing that's important to understand about these workers is they'll come in, they will work for, you know, months at a time, make as much money as they can, and then go home. One of the things that's happened in this boom is you have what's called man camps, which is just temporary housing for these thousands and tens of thousands of workers that are pouring into the area. There's not housing in these areas to accommodate them, so they literally build these camps overnight. But some of them Mm -hmm. have actually gotten pretty nice. They have pools and advertised gourmet dining.
1: From 2010 to 2015, the entire industry was making so much money that one government report said the fracking boom added as much as 1% to U.S. GDP. There were also a lot of environmental issues with fracking. Like, I remember gas getting into the water supply in some places and earthquakes happening near fracking areas. Did any of those environmental concerns slow down fracking?
0: Not really. If you look at the production numbers, they they didn't slow down at all. They just kept growing.
1: The industry grew so much that U.S. oil production doubled in less than a decade. But you can't produce that much oil in that little time without some unintended consequences. And for frackers, one of those consequences was that they had disrupted the market for the industry's most powerful group, OPEC. Since its founding in the 1960s, OPEC has controlled much of the world's oil supply and prices. Fracking threatened that dominance because now a significant amount of the world's oil supply was coming from a place outside of its control. So OPEC decided to strike back in kind of an unusual way. So OPEC,
0: and in particular Saudi Arabia, decided to flood the market with oil to see if they could lower prices and basically kill the shale
1: industry. U.S. oil prices have dipped below $30 a barrel for the first time since 2003, 12 years. That's great news for American drivers and consumers who are enjoying gas prices below two bucks a gallon, but very cheap oil also means economic pain for Americans with jobs in the energy industry, and there are many of those
0: worldwide. Oil prices crashed to below 30 a barrel as this huge amount of Middle Eastern oil came
1: onto the market. As prices were plummeting in 2015, OPEC refused to cut production. The group's president said it was because, quote, we just felt comfortable to wait and watch. The price crash cut profits across the whole industry. But this was especially bad for frackers. Because remember, their method of extracting oil was a lot more expensive than conventional drilling. With cheaper prices...
0: The the shale industry was was suddenly in, in real trouble. I mean, you're talking about going from $90 oil to sub $30 oil, and that's just a, a precipitous fall that was very difficult to anticipate. They can make money at $90 oil. There's no way they can make money below 30 And bankruptcies were on the rise. You know, more than 200,000 workers lost their jobs. A lot of companies were just struggling to hold on
1: the fracking industry did manage to hold on. A lot of companies survived the crash by taking out huge loans to cover costs. When oil prices recovered to about 50 to 60 bucks a barrel, the fracking industry reassured its investors that even at these lower prices, it would still be able to make money. But a second blow was coming, and that would bring the industry to its knees. That's after the break. — Welcome back. Once oil prices stabilized around $50 to $60 a barrel, it started to become clear that even that price wasn't actually high enough for frackers to become profitable. And then there was another issue.
0: The problem is that the wells aren't producing as much oil and gas as they thought they would.
1: It turned out that those early projections from the fracking industry, which helped attract so much money, weren't accurate. Estimates for how much oil they'd be able to get out of the wells were off by 10%. And in some areas, they were off by as much as 50%, all because of two big assumptions that frackers had made.
0: The first was that they could pack wells closer together, squeezing more value from the land that they'd leased. And then also that they could replicate their best early results.
1: And that's the thing that's known as the so-called parent-child problem.
0: That's right. The parent well is the, the first well that's drilled on a, a lease, on a piece of land. And then the child well are the subsequent wells that are, are drilled near it. And basically what's happened is that the child wells cannibalize the parent wells. And so each well produces less than the parent well would on its own. So the majority of wells going forward are going to be these, these child wells, and they're just not producing as much as the parents.
1: So the takeaway then is that children make parents less productive. <laughs> <laughs> In
0: the oil and gas
1: industry anyways, that's true. These missed projections were a big problem, especially because frackers had taken on all that debt a few years earlier to stay afloat. To pay off that debt, frackers needed to be able to pump lots of oil.
0: This is an industry that basically hasn't made any money. And this is finally coming home to roost. Investors are, are basically fleeing the space. Their stocks are at all-time lows.
1: One of the worst-performing stocks in the industry is a company called Chesapeake Energy. Chesapeake had placed huge early bets on fracking. In 2008, its stock was worth over $50 a share. Now, it's almost worthless—about 50 cents a share—
0: Chesapeake was one of the early darlings of the industry, but just earlier this month, they, for the first time, signaled that they could go bankrupt, that if prices stay low, their ability to operate is in jeopardy, which is just really a a stunning turnaround for what was once one of the most promising shale companies in, in the country.
1: Chesapeake says it's been trying to sell assets and cut costs in order to pay down its debt, The company says it hopes to get back to profitability in 2020. But what's happening to Chesapeake is representative of what's happening all over the industry.
0: I think it's unavoidable that there's going to be more bankruptcies. We've already seen that start to pick up. Some of these companies just will not be able to hold on if oil prices stay where they are. So I think it's not like shale is dead, but a lot of companies in shale probably will die.
1: I can imagine some others who may be more concerned about the impact that fossil fuels have, or otherwise opposed to fracking in general, who might just say, well, good riddance to this industry.
0: There's absolutely that sentiment out there. There are some people who think that even if there's an economic cost, the benefit to getting off of fossil fuels and therefore reducing the carbon emissions that come from them is totally worth the cost, and that... Even if there is some short-term pain that, you know, we can weather that and eventually switch to renewables or less carbon-intensive sources of energy.
1: And what about for the local economies and all of those workers? You know, those barbers that were going out and making $150,000 a year cutting hair. What is it going to mean for those people?
0: I think it could be devastating for communities that rely on the oil and gas industry. There'll be a loss of jobs. There'll be a loss of economic activity. The last crash in oil prices, more than 200,000 people lost their jobs. We're already starting to see a slowdown across the country, and companies are beginning to lay folks off. And so I think there's some fear setting in that the worst is yet to come.
1: Fracking companies say news of their demise is premature. They've promised investors to live within their means and become profitable. They also say they figured out the parent-child problem and have decades' worth of oil left to drill. How much of the shale industry's current problems are a result of their own actions and their own mistakes that they made along the way?
0: I think um, there are some people in the industry who feel like the industry has shot itself in the foot. I interviewed... um, a CEO, a well-known fracking pioneer named Mark Papa recently. And he thinks that these estimates, these optimistic estimates that the industry put out were essentially their undoing. And that Shale was in this dance with Wall Street where Wall Street wanted Shale to grow at incredible rates. And as Mark Papa said, now that dance is coming to an
1: end. That's all for today, Wednesday, November 20th.
0: The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal.
1: If you like the show, follow us on Spotify or wherever you listen. We're out weekday afternoons.
0: Thanks for listening.